Hello and welcome, fellow coffee and book lovers. Today we continue on in Coffee, a Connoisseur's Companion by Claudia Rodin to chapter one called History. A tumultuous start. Coffee is only three centuries old for us in the West, and not one bean was made to germinate outside Africa and Arabia before the 17th century. Then, coming from the Levant and arriving first in Venice, it swept tumultuously through the towns of Europe and into America, changing the style of life as it went. The propagation of the plant followed in each European country's colonies in what was often a series of chance adventures. It acquired its name from the Arabic quaha, which is through its Turkish form cave, becoming cafe in French, cafe in Italian, coffee in Dutch, and kaffee in German. And I apologize for any mispronunciations. Originally a poetic name for wine, the word was transferred towards the end of the 13th century in the Yemen to a drink made from the berry of a coffee tree. One explanation for this is that coffee, first inaugurated in Sufi mystic circles, had come to replace the forbidden wine as a drink during religious ceremonies. Delighted by the wakefulness the new drink produced and the help it gave them in their nightly prayers, the early Mohammedans honored it by giving it the poetic endearment with which they had sung the praise of wine. Although the earliest written mention of coffee was by Razes, an Arabian physician in the 10th century, cultivation may have begun as early as AD 575. The coffee tree of the Kofia Arabica species, which gives the best quality coffee, is indigenous to Ethiopia, where it grows wild. Other species, such as the Robusta and the Liberica, have since been found in other parts of Africa. Arabica was first cultivated in the Arabian colony of Harar in Ethiopia. Intensive cultivation came only in the 15th century in the Yemen area of South Arabia from seedlings brought from Ethiopia. Early legends ascribe the discovery of coffee to various people. The favorite one, which has been generally adopted, is that of the dancing goats. Kaldi, a young Abyssinian goat herd, used to his sleepy goats, noticed to his amazement that after chewing certain berries they began to prance about excitedly. He tried the berries himself, forgot his troubles, lost his heavy heart, and became the happiest person in Happy Arabia. A monk from a nearby monastery surprised Kaldi in this state, decided to try the berries too, and invited his brothers to join him. They all felt more alert that night during their prayers. Soon all of the monks of the realm were chewing the berries and praying without feeling drowsy. Another popular tradition of which I am personally fond is related by a certain Hajiji Khalifia. It concerns Ali bin Omar al-Shadhili, the saint of Al-Muqa, charged with misconduct with the king's daughter who was staying with him for a cure, he was banished into the mountains of Wusab in the Yemen. He and his disciples who followed him in exile ate the berries and drank the decoction they made from boiling them. Then, it seems, victims of an itch epidemic which plagued the inhabitants of Muqa came to him and were cured by taking his coffee. This won him an honorable return and gave him the position of patron saint of coffee growers, 
coffee housekeepers, and coffee drinkers. In Algeria, coffee is also known as Shadhile after him. Coffee berries were eaten whole at first, or crushed and mixed with fat. Later, a kind of wine was made with the fermented pulp. In about AD 1000, a decoction was made of the dried fruit, beans, hull, and all. The practice of roasting the beans was started around the 13th century. The drink became popular with dervishes and spread to Mecca and Medina. By the end of the 15th century, it was passed on by Muslim pilgrims to all part of the Islamic world, as far as Persia, Egypt, Turkey, and North Africa, providing Arabia with the most profitable trade. Houses of the wealthy had a special room used only for drinking coffee, and servants employed solely to make it. Coffee houses sprang up everywhere people congregated. The more they frequented the coffee houses, the less they went to the mosques. Backgammon, mancala, dancing, music, and singing, activities frowned on by the stricter adherents of Islam, also went on in the coffee houses. Having made a start within religion, coffee became a threat to religious observance. The pious tried to prohibit it by invoking the law prescribing wine drinking. The establishment, too, was afraid of the joy of life and sense of freedom liberated in the coffee drinkers. Coffee became a subversive drink, gathering people together and sharpening their wits, encouraging political arguments and revolt, a characteristic which was to follow it into Europe and which was felt particularly in times of social unrest. Coffee houses were to be charged again and again with immorality and vice, whether in Cairo, Mecca, or Constantinople. At the instigation of religious fanatics, or at the whim of a bey, a pasha, or qadi, but also once for the sake of a favorite courtesan, they were mobbed and wrecked. Of the sporadic persecution of coffee houses and drinkers, the most savage was in 1656, when the Ottoman Grand Vizier Kuprili suppressed the coffee houses for political reasons and prohibited coffee. For a first violation, the punishment was cudgeling. For a second, the offender was put into a leather bag, which was sewn up and thrown into the Bosphorus. The straits thus claimed many a man. The introduction of coffee into Europe was not without pitfalls. The more avid its adoption and the wider it spread, the more hostility it aroused. A Woman's Petition Against Coffee was published in London in 1674, complaining that men were never to be found at home during times of domestic crisis since they were always in coffee houses, and that the drink rendered them impotent. The following year, in France, attempts were made to discredit the drink, which was seen as an unwelcome competitor by wine merchants. In Italy, it was the priests who appealed to Pope Clement VIII to have the use of coffee forbidden among Christians. Satan, they said, had forbidden his followers, the infidel Muslims, the use of wine because it was used in the Holy Communion, and given them instead his hellish black brew. It seems the Pope liked the drink, for his reply was, why, this Satan's drink is so delicious that it would be a pity to let the infidels have exclusive use of it. We shall cheat Satan by baptizing it. 
Thus, coffee was declared a truly Christian beverage by a far-sighted pope. However, this did not stop the Council of Ten in Venice from trying to eradicate the social cankers, the cafes, which they charged with immorality, vice, and corruption. Coffee also met with opposition in Sweden, Prussia, and Hanover. Frederick the Great, annoyed with the great sums of money going to foreign coffee merchants, issued the following declaration in 1777. It is disgusting to note the increase in the quantity of coffee used by my subjects and the amount of money that goes out of the country in consequence. Everybody is using coffee. If possible, this must be prevented. My people must drink beer. His Majesty was brought up on beer, and so were his officers. Many battles have been fought and won by soldiers nourished on beer, and the king does not believe that coffee-drinking soldiers can be depended upon to endure hardships or to beat his enemies in case of the occurrence of another war. It must be said that with all the official sanctions and taxation and the threat of disease and persecution, prohibitions were always more honored in the breach than in the observance. In fact, coffee gained a greater impetus from the notoriety, and coffee houses survived every effort to, supp to suppress them. Thank goodness they did. That is from me. And that ends the first segment of Chapter 1, History. Join me next time for more reading. Thank you.